Good morning, everyone. Happy New Year. How many of you, your New Year's off to just a fabulous start? About seven of you. That's good. <laughs> well, the rest of you, hopefully it picks up pace here in the uh, next couple weeks. Uh, I'm, I'm excited about this year. Every uh, end of every year, beginning of the next, I just take a lot of time to try to reflect and look out on the next year and, and really try to live into some uh, things that I'm hoping for and dreaming about. And uh, one of the things that I'm really excited about is this series that we're going to be doing here this next four weeks because it really focuses on the Lord's Prayer. And that's what we're going to be doing is just focusing on this significant aspect of prayer. And what I want to do right at the beginning here is uh, just ask for a little bit of feedback. What images come to your mind when you think of prayer? When you think of this idea of praying, uh, what words, images, concepts come to your mind? You tell me. Hands. Okay? Hands. Reflection. Reflection. Good. What else? Solitude. Solitude. Angelic. Christianese, so saying certain words and saying them a certain way. Yeah, what else? Humility. Silence. Any other thoughts come to mind? Thankfulness. I know that all of us have different images that come to our mind. I'm going to give you a few of the images that come to my mind when I think of prayer. One of the first ones is posture. Ben kind of alluded to it with the hands. Uh, growing up, how many of you were taught the whole close your eyes, bow your head, clasp your hands? How many of you kind of had? I mean, I don't know what Sunday school teacher like came up with that in the first place, but it's interesting, really, if you think about it, because the whole idea, I could just imagine someone teaching four- and five-year-olds, it's time to pray, and they're going, okay, let's start praying, and it's just like crazy, and they go, okay, clasp your hands. That's how we pray. We Everyone grab your hand. Okay, good. And it's still not working. They're like, okay, close your eyes. This will help with prayer. And then bow your head. And we'll get in this correct posture. And if we do, then there'll be no distractions. There'll be no problems. And so we, sometimes I have these images of prayer through the lens of posture. And I just see it as that. Uh, Another one that comes to mind for me is the image of like a monk or someone at a monastery that like several of you mentioned silence and solitude, getting away, a time of reflection, just a period of quiet and a lot of contemplation and it's just me and God and nobody else. Maybe that's an image that comes to your mind. Another image that comes to my mind is the idea of a vending machine. I don't know how many of you grew up kind of treating God a bit like a vending machine where I want something, so I go up to the vending machine, I punch in. If I say the things the right way, out comes the thing that I'm hoping for, right? And so we begin treating God kind of like this vending machine dispenser of all things good up in the sky. And so we come and we make out our list of requests, and basically our prayer consists of like 99.9% requests, and I just keep asking and asking and asking for what I need. And sometimes we take that approach, or we have that particular viewpoint. I know growing up, I had um, a wonderful church that I went to, and uh, at this particular church, they had a prayer meeting, and there was a time where 
we would come and when we walked in the door, we were handed a list of prayer requests. And the list always seemed to have very few statements of praise, if any. Maybe a few like, hey, pray for this missionary or that. But then there was just like a whole page of like Mildred's toe that needed healed. And like somebody who was sick. And I mean, there are good things to pray for. But it always just seemed like we were asking, asking, asking. Another image that comes to mind is just the rosary, the beads. Maybe you've prayed that before, and maybe you uh, pray that on occasion. Uh, but it's another image that I think many of us see. Here's another current popular image. Maybe not super popular, but right now, this is what comes to mind when I think of praying. <laughs> T-bowing. <laughs> yeah, T-bowing right now is really popularized prayer, or it's become an image that often, when people in general think of prayer, some of them, that's their first thought. Sad but true that this is another image. So all of us have different images. And for the next four weeks, what we want to do is just wrestle with this idea of prayer. We want to ask questions. We want to make statements. We want to have discussion together. And hopefully at the end of four weeks, come out with a little more rich perspective on prayer. A richer perspective on who it is we're praying to, why it is we're praying what it is we're praying for, how prayer affects us and changes us. We're focusing specifically on Matthew and on the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. The Lord's Prayer, if you kind of break it down, it's made up of one address and then six requests. You'll see the address is our Father who art in heaven. The requests are hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, give us Daily bread, forgive us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Those are the six requests in the one address. This morning, what I want to do is focus all of our time on the address and then the first request. So we're going to spend all of our time focused on those kind of two things. And I want to look at them through, again, this lens of image. We were talking about images of prayer. And I want to look at the beginning or the start of the Lord's Prayer through the images of family, breath, and sandals. Family, breath, and sandals. If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 6, if you're not there already. And uh, we're going to read through this section on the Lord's Prayer. I'll start reading in verse 5 of Matthew 6. It says this, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father 
forgive your trespasses. It's a uh, very familiar passage of Scripture, one that many of us have probably read hundreds of times, and then for some of us, we've probably quoted it thousands of times. It's a passage that uh, is so familiar, and yet I think there's so much material in this passage that can really uh, teach us about who God is and what it means to pray to Him. And so the first image that I want to look at this morning is the image of family. It's found in this phrase, our Father. The image of family. Here's what I want you to do. You're going to talk to your neighbor here for a moment, give you about a minute to do it. And I want you to kind of answer this question. Why does Jesus start out by saying or teaching us to pray, our Father, and why is that significant? What can we learn from it? All right, so he starts off and he says, when you begin your prayer, say, our Father. So you tell me, and talk to your neighbor for a minute or two about it, why is that significant, and what is it that we can learn about it, about why he asked us to do that, okay? I'll give you a minute or so to talk and then get some responses. Go. All right, <clears throat> what, can we, uh, what can we learn from this opening address? Jesus says, our Father, and he teaches us to follow that example in prayer. What is he communicating and what can we learn? You tell me. Good. Relational. Excellent. What else? Okay, all equal as children of God. Dependency. Those are great, both of them. Yeah, any others? I saw another hand. Possessive. Good. Yeah. Yeah, these are all, I mean, excellent, excellent concepts and ideas that really speak into this idea of our Father. I mean, if you just take the word Father for a moment, many of you are talking about it, it's this relational aspect, that there's this individual, this God of the universe who is caring for us, providing for us, nurturing, who's wanting this healthy relationship between him and between us, that there's this intimacy and Perhaps even an image of protection that he is this father who watches over his children and cares for them. So there's this relational piece. There's also the piece tied to this idea that we're adopted into the family. I think I heard someone talk about this idea of family. That we are really adopted once we become a follower of Jesus into this collective group. This people that would all call him father. That we are brothers and sisters together in this family of God. Someone else said, I think, that there is this uh, idea that we're all on the same level before God. That there is no um, racial inequality as it comes to my relationship with God. There's no status inequality. There's no one that would be considered an insider versus someone else being considered an outsider. That we all come at the same level and declare Him his father. I think uh, Nuri mentioned this idea that that would be shocking to call him father, that you would call him something else, but you wouldn't call him father. Not only that, what's, what I found interesting is that uh, in Islam, when they talk about God, there's what I understand to be about 99 names for God that they have. And of those 99 names, 96 of them are clearly adjectives only. The other three would maybe be most likely adjectives. You could describe them a different way. But they would teach that you never, ever, ever describe God by a metaphor. 
Never. And yet, God just changes, Jesus changes the whole paradigm. And he says, no, you can call him Father. You can address him in an entirely different way than your Old Testament upbringing, than your reality right now, that I'm teaching you a new way of communicating with the Father. That everything has changed. Not only is Father an important aspect of this first address, but I think the word our is a very important part of the equation as well. This idea that God doesn't teach us to say, my Father, but He teaches us to say, our Father. Now that's really significant. And part of why I think it's significant, because what it's communicating is this, that those of us, and we know this, that if we have committed our lives to be followers of Jesus, if we are pursuing Him, we're in this relationship with God, it is clear throughout Scripture that what you are described as is not just a disciple, but you're described now as a son or a daughter. You're not described as just a follower. You're described as part of the family of God. That you've entered into this new relationship. Now here's why that's significant to me. First of all, we live in a highly individualistic, consumeristic society. The society that surrounds us is all about individual. The whole goal is to set yourself apart from other people. It's to value the individual. We want you to have it your way. We want everything to be specific to you. Also, it's about consuming. The whole system that we've set up is about the consuming of goods and products and services. What Jesus is communicating in this prayer is super countercultural for us today. He's saying instead of an individualistic, consumeristic society, that you have now become a part of a collective, contributing community. Here's the difference. The first is really about being self-focused. It's self-promotion. It's about the individual above the group. It's about what it is you can take, what it is you can gain, what it is you can have. The second idea, this idea of a collective contributing community, is really the idea that it's others first. That it's about the other. That the the good of the whole is better than just the good of the individual. That it's not about what I take, but it's about what I give. It's about what I'm contributing. See, I think that the paradigm of the world has slowly crept into our understanding even of the Lord's Prayer. We begin to see it primarily as a me and God thing as opposed to an us and God thing. That we think of it solely as like my relationship with God and whether everything is right between me and God and we forget or we neglect the idea that it is a prayer that all of us are collectively praying. Now, where this shows up is if I ask the question, what is the lowest common denominator of your relationship with God or of your faith? I think most people in general would start to communicate that the lowest common denominator is me and God or you and God. That when you scale back all the other pieces, you get down to the lowest aspect of our faith, we would say that it's a me and God thing. And I would say that's entirely false. 
that what happens when you enter a relationship with God is that it automatically becomes a we and God thing. See, God is not my father, or he is my father because he's first our father. There's this understanding that we cannot really describe ourselves independent or separate from the body of Christ or the family of God. Have you thought of that before? That you cannot describe yourself as an individual Christian apart from this and be theologically correct at the same time. Because there's a collective. It's an our. That's so important to the start of this address. It's so important to this prayer. So the first image is this image of family. The second image is the image of breath. Now, this idea of breath has really been starting to impact my understanding of this uh, particular prayer and these particular verses. But before I get to breath, let me ask you this quick question. When you think of the phrase, who art in heaven, okay? So if you look at your text, our Father in heaven or our Father who art in heaven, when you think of that phrase, who art in heaven, what are the images that come to your mind for that? Just shout them out. Yeah, God's sitting on his throne, holy and majestic. What else? Okay, earth, wind, fire, water. Good. What else? Distance. Other images come to mind. Clouds. Okay, there's all these, these pictures that come to your mind when you hear who art in heaven. That there is this father, this relational father we're speaking to. That he's not just my father, but our father. And we're communicating to him. And he's in the heavens. Or he's in heaven. And... St. John Chrysostom made this statement that I thought was really interesting. He said, Jesus describes God as the one who art in heaven, not to limit God to the heavens, but to lift us up from the earth. And this has been my problem with prayer from the time I was little. It's a singular versus plural problem. Let me explain what I mean. A singular versus plural problem. For most of my prayer life when I was younger, I understood this prayer, strictly in terms of singular perspective. The God who is in heaven, right? And what this part of the prayer, this part of the address, really began to teach me, or what I began to kind of lean into the understanding of, was that God was in heaven, and this verse gave me his GPS coordinates. It was like, okay, now I know where God is, and I know where I am. And God is other. He is distant. He is there. In fact, in my prayer life growing up, and uh, and many times still, there there are seasons that I find it difficult to connect with God. Have you ever had one of those seasons where you feel like you're praying, but you're not really connecting with God at all? How do you describe those seasons to people? Have you ever described those before? Dry. It's a good description. Empty? You want to know another way I think we often describe this disconnect with God? We describe it in terms of distance. Here's what I mean. I feel like my prayers hit the ceiling. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase before. My prayers can't seem to reach God. Like I I send them up, but they kind of get lost in the clouds before they get there. Or... God feels so distant, so apart from me, right? I feel like I can't get close to God. Often, the words we use besides 
this description of hollowness or a description of distance. That God feels other, separate, apart, away. That has had significant impact on me because when I begin to pray, one of the things that I often imagine is him there somewhere. And if only he could really be here and with me in this, then I feel like my prayer life would be richer. And yet, he's in heaven. And what is interesting is how the plural changes this. Probably a better interpretation or a better statement of this phrase at the beginning, our Father, instead of who art in heaven, it should be who art in the heavens. Now the difference between singular and plural in this is really a difference between distance. So God, who is in the heavens, now understands, when we understand this, we understand it both in terms of Him being other, but Him being present. That He's in heaven, but also in the heavens. That He is far away and yet close. That He's a both and. I mean, it's, that's a significant and has been a very significant learning for me. And that's where the idea of breath comes in. See, a plural understanding of this idea, or plural understanding of the heavens, means that Jesus, God, the Spirit of God, is as close as a breath. In fact, He's near. He's at hand. He's present. The Hebrew word behind Spirit in the Old Testament, and the Greek word behind Spirit in the New Testament, both communicate this concept of breath, to breathe, as wind, as air. That the Spirit of God, that the presence of God is but a breath away, that He is close at hand, that He's near. And I think the omission of the plural begins to rob us of the significance and the intended meaning of this prayer. God is other. He is in heaven. He is on that throne, and yet He is here in the breath, close at hand. So as you think about engaging this opening address to the prayer, think family first. Think breath second. Third image is this. Third image is sandals. Sandals, hallowed be your name. And when I think of this section of the prayer, I think of this picture of sandals. This is the first request in this prayer. So we had the, the address, the two images of the address, and then this image of sandals. Now the reason sandals come to mind is because of a couple Old Testament periods in which a sandal kind of represented something significant. Can you think of any biblical characters that had an episode with sandals? Anyone? Moses. Moses is definitely the most prominent one. So Moses, who had been, they say, about 40 years wandering, taking care of sheep, and it was really just escaping the world that he came from before. And he finds himself in this desert area. He'd probably walked past this burning or this bush 
hundreds of times before. And on this particular time, as he strolls by like it's the same kind of day as the day before, he notices that the bush is on fire and yet not being consumed. So he makes his way over to this bush. He's staring at it. It's in flames. And yet, it it doesn't look like it's changing at all. And all of a sudden, he begins to hear this voice. And many of us recall what the voice says, right? Tells him to take off his sandals. Why does it say, take off your sandals? Because it's holy ground. It's holy ground, why? Because the presence of God is there in a unique way. That it's the same ground he walked on before. It's the same bush that he passed before. But now he's aware of the presence of God in a unique way and aware of His holiness and His majesty as God speaks to him. There's another example in the Old Testament of Joshua. Joshua's walking along, getting ready for battle, and all of a sudden, he's face to face with Jesus before Jesus comes. He's face to face with the angel of the Lord, and he stands before him, and what is one of the first things that's uttered? Take off your sandals. Why? Well, you're in the presence of me. This is holy ground. You, You can't approach this the same way you approach everything else. And so take off the sandals because it's holy. Really, this phrase, hallowed be your name, can be described in many ways as this understanding of something sacred and holy. Let me give you two ways of maybe better understanding or better thinking of this phrase. The first one is, let your name be sanctified. He's praying, and he's teaching us to pray, to let God's name be sanctified. Which basically means, let your name be uniquely respected. Let your name be treasured above all other names. Let your name be given the recognition it deserves. Let your name be known as one that has no rivals. That there's none greater. It means to understand this reverence for Him and for His name. To understand His holiness and His majesty and who He is. I think there's a second way of understanding this as well. And maybe a, a better translation is this. May it be made holy, Your name. So our Father who art in the heavens... May it be made holy, your name. It's a prayer that's stating this. God, we plead with you for you to make your name holy. Now some of you are probably thinking, well, I already thought it was holy. Why do we need for us to pray to make it holy? Well, for a couple reasons. One, there's no one else that can make his name holy other than himself. That's the first and foremost. The second is this. What we're actually praying for is for him to reveal the holiness of his name in our world and in our context. So, in essence, we're, we're saying, God, please demonstrate again to us your holiness. Please make your name known, make it revealed, 
make it significant, make it declared, make it famous in all of the world. And we know that you are the one that can do it, so we're asking for you to intervene. We're asking for you to step into our world. It's as if uh, in Isaiah there's this prayer that says, Lord, rend the heavens and come down. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And he's basically saying, listen, we're praying that God would rend the heavens, reveal himself, and that everyone would recognize the holiness and majesty of God. That God, you would make your name holy. That's what we're praying. That we would understand it. And the interesting thing about this picture of sandals for me is that when we're standing on holy ground, when we're recognizing this holiness of God, it required a participation on the part of both Moses and Joshua. It was take the sandals off, participate in this because of my holiness. That same participation is our responsibility as well. It's almost an implied teaching in this prayer that as I pray, God, I'm asking that you would make your name holy. At the same time, I'm revealing that there's this implied participation to practice that same holiness. That's why he says, be holy as I am holy. That you walk as I walk. You live as I live. And in doing so, we also participate in making his name holy. It's only him that can make his name holy, and yet we get to participate in this unique way that as we live in holiness, his name becomes more revered, more people recognize him, and then he becomes more glorious. Not because he becomes it, but because we understand him as that. So this prayer has just so much material in it, so much understanding and rich images. And the images this morning, just to get us started and to kind of open the door for these next three weeks, is, is really the image of family. That we speak to a father, a relational father, but we speak as a collective group. That we pray collectively, that we pray as a community. Second, breath, that when we speak to Him, that it's not this distant, far-out God, but a God that is but a breath away. That He is present and near at hand. And last, this image of sandals, that this God that we are praying to, we are beseeching Him and asking Him to make His name holy. To allow us to see His holiness and to allow us to live into the reality of that holiness. May those three images kind of shape your thinking about this prayer as we head into these next three weeks. What we're going to do here in the next couple moments is this. I'm going to give you just a period of about a minute or two to reflect on one of those images. Just pick one that kind of resonates with you the most or one that you're hearing the Spirit of God say to you, and I want you to, to think on that particular image. And I want you to meditate on that image for about a minute or two. And then what we're going to do is collectively pray the Lord's Prayer together. And then we're going to enter into a time of worship and communion. One of the things that has historically been true of the church, and specifically the early church, is that whenever they took communion or the Lord's Supper, that they would always recite 
the Lord's Prayer before it. And so for the next four weeks, before we take communion every time, we are going to recite together, corporately, the Lord's Prayer. All right? So take a minute or two, reflect on one image in silence. We'll quote the Lord's Prayer together, and then we'll enter into a time of communion. All right?